Hello, listeners, and welcome to this episode of Brain Matters. I'm your host, Anu Kumar, and today we're going to be talking about music and the brain. We're going to discuss a few questions, such as how is music processed in the brain, and what does it take to be a musician, and the different phenomena that can occur while listening to music, such as synesthesia. So helping me talk today about these topics will be Dr. Barbara Murphy, the Associate Professor of Music Theory here at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. So we're going to dive right into the pre-recorded interview, and then we will fill in any blanks on the neuroscience side after the interview. All right, so for this episode of Brain Matters, we have our very first guest. She will be giving us some insight into the world of music from the music theory side, and hopefully we can bridge some information between the two of us. So, Dr. Murphy, if you would go ahead and just introduce yourself to our listeners and let them know who you are and what you do here. I'm uh, Dr. Barbara Murphy. I teach, I'm Associate Professor of Music Theory here at UT. I've taught here for, this is my 22nd year. So I teach mainly freshman and sophomore music theory and oral training, some upper division undergrad, and some graduate courses in music theory pedagogy. Nice. Mm -hmm. All right, so can you give us a little bit background about what is music theory for our non-musical listeners and what made you interested in it in the first place? Music theory is a hard thing to define. Many people think that it's learning about, you know, the triads and the intervals and the key signatures and all the rest of it, but that's really learning the grammar and the language of music. Music theory is actually looking at the music and trying to figure out what the composers did. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's that it really is creating theories about the music that we listen to and that we um, hear, compose, play, whatever. Okay, so from that perspective, um, are there a lot of like hard, dead-set rules when it comes to music theory, or is it all really subjective? There's very few always rules in music theory, mm-hmm. very few. Um, there's always an exception, because that's what composers do, is they try to do things new. If they did everything the same and followed all the rules, then music would always be kind of boring. Right. So... Um, so there isn't really a lot of rules. It's, it's really taking what you've got and trying to figure it out and coming up with new ways to look at it. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. All right. So regarding what uh, it takes to be a musician, a lot of people kind of think, you know, you don't really do a lot while you're <laughs> making <laughs> Well, you're. Um, <laughs> Shouldn't have done that. <laughs> uh, uh, a lot of people think it, you don't really need a lot of uh, skill to be a musician. You just kind of have to play your instrument. So, can you kind of like go into detail about what sort of skills it takes to be a musician at the professional level or even at the collegiate level, being a music student? Yeah. Um, well, do, naturally, you do need some talent mm-hmm. um, to to be able to play an instrument. You need talent. You need really good ears to be able to hear and to put your part in with everybody else's and stay in tune and all that. But mainly, you you need some real brains in there, and you need also some hard work and tenacity and a work ethic. Because mm-hmm. um, music is very hard. Musicians work really hard. You know, the students here take 15 to 18 hours of credit, which is more like, you know, 25 to 30 hours of classes in class a week. And that's a lot. Um, so there needs to be a good work ethic and a lot of tenacity. You need to be able to take criticism, mm-hmm. um, which is hard for some students and, and professionals, um, to listen to somebody else and, and take in the criticism and turn it into good things and come up with something better. Um, 
you also need a level of creativity mm -hmm. because whenever you're playing, you're interpreting what's on that page. Mm -hmm. So you have to have enough knowledge of music to know what all those little notes and symbols mean and to turn it into something meaningful to you and then take your emotions and um, give them to somebody else and let them feel the music as well. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things going on. I mean, using your, your brain to process the music and the, the, um, the notes on the page into what you're playing. You're listening to everybody else. You're reacting to everybody else that's playing plus the audience. Mm -hmm. There's a lot going on. Yeah. Wow, that, yeah, that is a lot. <laughs> um, you don't think about it when you're doing it, but right. you really are doing all that. And um, uh, if I'm correct, whenever music education majors here, they have to take uh, different classes about learning how to play different types of instruments, Yeah. right? And, they, and um, is the technique different, the same? Do they have to think about the same types of things when they're learning to play different instruments, or is it just kind of like all over the place? I was music ed as an undergrad. It was kind of all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you hope that you can just make a sound out of the instrument and put down the right fingers to get the right notes. Um, but what you're basically learning in those classes is not necessarily how to play every instrument, but what's hard about those instruments and how to teach those instruments. Mm -hmm. So that even if you can't make the greatest sound in the world, you know what you need to do to an embouchure or to you know, the mouthpiece or the reed or whatever in order to make that sound. Mm -hmm. So when you're teaching little kids, that you can play it back. Okay. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, I always viewed it as uh, they have to be able to play it to the best of their ability, but... Yeah, but the best of their ability isn't always very good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that is... Uh, yeah, you do have a point there. <laughs> All right. So you mentioned uh, something about uh, oral training. So can you talk about the concept of um, oral training or ear training um, and the types of things people have to think about while they are um, learning to, I guess, like transcribe music or are in those um, oral training classes? Yeah. The oral training is really hard, and it's very hard for some students because they have never had to sit down and think about what they're hearing and then write it down. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing in oral training is dictating. And then you're also trying to um, reproduce the music through sight singing. Mm -hmm. One of the textbooks always called it, you're trying to develop the, let me see if I can get this right, the hearing eye so that you hear what you see mm -hmm. and the seeing ear mm -hmm. so that you can transcribe what you hear, mm -hmm. which I always thought was kind of a cool little phrase. Right. Um, but when you're transcribing music, I, I think about like melodic or harmonic dictation, which we teach the kids. So they listen to a melody or a harmonic progression and they have to write it down. So kids, if you're thinking about melodic or harmonic dictation, so melodic dictation where they have to listen to a melody and write it down, or a harmonic progression and have to figure out what the chords are, mm -hmm. um, or transcribing and putting those two things together. There's a lot involved. First of all, they have to be able to hear the music. Mm -hmm. So, and, and we as teachers have no way of knowing whether they're hearing it and processing it unless they can somehow reproduce it. Okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. we can't see what's going on in their heads. Yeah. Um, I, can, I can listen to a melody and say, yep, I got it. And, but I have, somebody else is not going to know whether you do or not. Right. So, so the first thing is they have to be able to hear it. And then, hopefully, they can reproduce it somehow, mm -hmm. either sing it back or 
play it on an instrument mm-hmm. or something. Um, that way we know what they've heard. But once they've heard it, then, I mean, they do have to kind of play it back in their head. So the next step is that they kind of have to memorize it. So you have to have a really good memory. And sometimes it's hard to build that musical memory. Mm-hmm. Um, so you listen to it, you've heard it, then you memorize it so you can play it back. Then you have to start figuring out what it is you've heard. So then you start figuring out what were those notes, what note did it start on, what note did it end on, how far up did it go, did it go down or up, um, how far, and then let's put into that the rhythm of it. So now they have to figure out the rhythm and the notes at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then th- once they've got it, I mean, they might have it in their head and say, okay, I know what it is. But then there's the next step, because we as teachers can't read their brains still, so we have to have them write it down. Mm -hmm. So then they have to turn what they've heard into musical notation. So you actually have four steps in any transcribing process, the hearing, the memorizing, the knowing what it is, and Mm -hmm. then the notational skill. And they've got to have skills in all of those in order to get it right. Right. So it's really, really hard, and it's hard to separate the steps. What if they can hear it and sing it back, but they can't figure it out? Or they figured it out, but they have no idea how to write it down. Mm -hmm. And you don't know which step. If all you've asked them to do is, you know, listen, write it, and what you've got is on the page. Mm -hmm. You don't know where it's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. So you really only can figure that out from the end result. Yeah. Um, Wow. Unless somehow, you know, you can harness the steps along the way, which yeah. isn't the easiest of things to do. If you're working one-on-one with a student, then it's easier because mm-hmm. you can kind of see if, they can, if they've got it, and you can also ask them to sing it back again mm-hmm. and see where they're, they're going wrong. But if it's a fairly long melody, you know, they could get the beginning and the end and the middle just... I've, I've heard kids get the beginning and the end, and the middle looks like they've just composed It has no relationship to what was played. Right. And that's for a melody. If you then add in the harmonies, now you've got chords to worry about Mm -hmm. and bass lines and other things. So it's really, really, there's a lot for them to think about with oral training. Wow, that is is definitely a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we just don't think about it. Oh, we we definitely don't. Um, Okay, so... My next question uh, kind of like connects to the neuroscience side of how we process music. So um, I don't know if you had a chance to look at this, but there was a recent story about a saxophone player. He was a uh, professor and a performer who played music during his own brain surgery. Um, so do you have any <laughs> do you have any thoughts about that? I think it's amazing yeah. <laughs> that they did this. I would love to. I know Elizabeth West Marvin teaches at Eastman, mm-hmm. and uh, she does a lot of perception and cognition stuff. Yes, um, and she's really well known in the area and has done things in that area for years. Um, I don't know that much about this particular story. All I know is what's in the paper. Uh But I would love to know what tests. It said that she came up with certain tests. Uh They mapped the brain while the guy was taking the tests in order to figure out what sections of the brain. Like his tumor was in. Yeah. Yeah, and what was being used when he was playing so they didn't touch those areas. Yeah. And I would love to see that, and mm-hmm. I would love to know what tests that she came up with mm-hmm. to, to, to know that 
this kind of material that you're looking at or trying to process is in this part of the brain versus this, which is in that part of the brain. Mm-hmm. I know in uh, some of the uh, like research write-ups from that case study, uh, she'd only specified uh, doing these short piano melodies. So it was just kind of okay. like what you're talking about with ear training of yeah. just can they recognize it and are they able to reproduce it. So that was a really huge step in like figuring out um, where that tumor was located. Yeah. Um, and the part of the brain that they actually found, it was, um, this is going to be a tongue twister, but it is the right posterior superior temporal gyrus. And um, I know it's, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that's basically like a really small section of a, a bigger section mm-hmm. um, of the brain uh, where whenever they stimulate it with electrodes that he was still able to um, like repeat sentences back like regular language. But whenever um, he tried to repeat the musical melodies, they um, he got some pitches wrong, he got the rhythms wrong, but he was still able to process language, like spoken language, but not musical language. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely like a, a very new area of the brain that they found that has like a one's particular localization yeah. of music. Um, so well, and that's kind of fun because at, at one point I programmed computers for a while and mm-hmm. I worked in a computer center and everybody always asked me what my major was and I said music and they said what are you doing over here <laughs> and I tried to come up for the longest time with a really good reason that music fit in with computer programming and I finally realized that it was a language it's a symbolic language mm-hmm. um, and you have to process it so when you're talking about this guy processing language but not necessarily processing music you're mm-hmm. processing two different kinds of language yeah and it's interesting that the same part of the brain isn't doing that, that mm-hmm. it's two different places Yeah. somehow. What I thought was interesting was they actually had him play the instrument Yeah. so that it wasn't just singing it back or listening mm-hmm. and, and knowing that he was processing, but the actual physical aspect of playing. Mm-hmm. Ew. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess she was in the operating room? Yeah, yeah. She, they, um, they had two... Um, neuroscientists collaborate with her um, yeah. to modify one of the pieces that he had played so that way whenever they did like the open brain surgery his brain would like protrude out of his skull yeah. from like the long sustained breaths um, so I thought it was really interesting definitely the collaboration of seemingly two different professions and professionals yeah. but they actually relate a lot more than yeah. we initially think mm-hmm. um, so yeah I think that's all the questions I have. Is there any anything else you would like to add or another topic you would like to add? I know you said a little you said something about um, working on computers for a little bit with music. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, that was a whole different kind of thing. It was yeah. way back early on. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things I'm really interested in now, which kind of goes to your neuroscience and all the rest of it, is the theory of chunking. Uh-huh. That we need to think about music when we take oral dictation and we and we take down melodies and things like that. A lot of times we think about them note by note, Mm -hmm. but instead what we should be thinking about is groups of notes. Uh And if you think about the groups and the pieces of it and chunks Mm -hmm. in it, that that might make it easier. So that's one of the things I'm looking into right now is seeing whether that would work. It's always been an interest of mine. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So it's almost like like restructuring a different learning technique when it comes to that. Well, we do it all the time. I mean, I always tell students that, I mean, think of your social security number. You don't think of it as nine individual numbers. It's bum, 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 bum. 
Yep. You know, so we do think of it in chunks. Phone numbers the same way. Mm -hmm. Your student ID, most of you think three and three numbers. Yeah. You know, it's not this set of six. So we do it all the time, but when we teach music theory, so many times we, in, in oral training especially, we tell them to think from note to note and all the little intervals in between when mm -hmm. we really shouldn't be doing that. We should be putting it in a bigger context mm -hmm. so that it fits. Like words in a sentence, you don't think of every single letter. You think of the word. Uh huh. You know. Yeah, that makes more sense when you when you explain it like that. Yeah, because otherwise you can't sight read. You can't do it. I mean, if you were processing every rhythm and every note, you'd never be able to sight read. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um. So it's. I forgot to ask you about this, but you mentioned sight reading. Could you explain a little bit to our listeners what sight reading is? Because I know we talked a little bit about like you know preparing music and what it takes to be a musician, like a practice musician. But um, I don't, I don't think any, not everyone is aware of what exactly sight reading is. Well, sight reading is pretty much what it says. You're reading something at sight that you've never seen before. Mm -hmm. So somebody gives you a piece of music, you look at it for a couple of minutes, think about what key you're in, what tempo you want to take it at, what rhythm is hard or easy and then you start playing it. And normally when you're sight reading, you want to keep going. You don't want to stop and go back. Mm -hmm. And so that's a hard part because you want to, you make a mistake, you want to stop and fix the mistake. Mm -hmm. But if you were playing with a group, if you have a whole group of people and they're all sight reading the piece, you just keep going and you try to find where you are if yeah. you go off and, and you just you know, figure it out. But that's where your listening skills come into play. Not mm -hmm. only the reading and the physical making the notes, um, but but listening to everybody else and saying, I'm not fitting in here. Mm -hmm. Something's wrong. Uh, where should I be? Am I at the wrong place? Am I at the wrong tempo? What's going on? Mm -hmm. You know. So, but sight reading is really just looking at it and then playing it without mm -hmm. a lot of rehearsal. Yeah. Without a lot of time to look at it ahead of time. And we do this to the kids all the time. We do it to high school groups. They go in. We do it in solo and ensemble things where they have to go in and sight read. Um, when you're auditioning and they give you, here, sight read this. We do it in juries at the end of the semester. Mm -hmm. So musicians are just kind of expected to do it. Right. Yeah. Um, so I guess final thoughts or a question about this would be, um, if someone was interested in being a music student, like maybe if uh, they're in high school, wanting to be a music major in college, or thinking about switching majors within the School of Music, do you have any advice or words of wisdom for them? Well, if they're thinking, if they're in high school and thinking about wanting to be a music major, practice, um, take your instrument, but also analyze, listen to music, mm -hmm. try to write it down, try to sing it back. Try to memorize music, get your musical memory built up, mm -hmm. um, be able to, to listen and sing long things back. Just practice everything you can about music. Read a lot, mm -hmm. you know, the normal things you would do if you're interested in a subject. Right. If you're switching majors, and that's kind of hard because you still have to audition for the School of Music, so you have to have some ability on it, and music majors do have hard curriculum it's a four-year curriculum so if you don't switch pretty early you're going to stick around for a while yeah but with me you're in high school and thinking about it then you really do need to prepare take you know learn the language of music learn to read music learn to read the rhythms and the notes and know how to put it together listen and then practice listening Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. awesome well, thank you so much for sure. taking time out of your day to do this interview. We really appreciate having you on here. 
All right, so that was our interview with Dr. Murphy. Again, she is the Associate Professor of Music Theory at the UT School of Music. Um, So we want to uh, go ahead and continue the rest of the podcast by talking about the different phenomenon that can occur while listening to music. So the first one is probably some of the most um, common things that people have experienced, and they're called earworms. So earworms are commonly defined as songs that can get stuck in your head, and most of us have probably experienced this before, even if we don't like the song. So according to The Science of Earworms, which is the shortened title of Gray Sticks' observations article in Scientific American, 19th century German psychologist Hermann Ebenhaus believed that earworms were involved with involuntary memory retrieval. So for example, you could be driving down a particular road while listening to a song on the radio, and now whenever you drive down that road, you have that one song stuck in your head for a certain duration of time. On the website Take Lesson, there's an article about the eight mysteries of music written by author David H., and he noted that sometimes a song's structure can actually contribute to whether or not it will actually get stuck in your head. Uh, so, for instance, smaller pitch intervals and easily repetitive patterns will be much easier to remember and be stuck in your head than a more complex, pe- complex piece of music. Um, so with that in mind, it's probably the reason why a lot of popular music, um, such as music played on the radio, follows a generic four-chord sequence because it is easier to remember and it becomes more catchy. So um, it's also more likely to happen while you're not really concentrating too hard on something, so maybe not while you're doing any sort of homework or mentally draining activities. And while you're uh, doing something very small, and repetitive, so maybe something like uh, putting away dishes or sweeping the floor or even exercising without music. And another huge topic I want to talk about is uh, synesthesia. So synesthesia is the cross-wiring of sensations, and so when one sense is stimulated, you actually perceive it with another. So in the cover story, Everyday Fantasia, The World of Synesthesia, written by Siri Carpenter, she talks about several real-life examples of people that have synesthesia. So one of her examples is a woman named Carol Crane, and she feels physical sensations when she listens to certain instruments in uh, certain pieces of music. And the article describes her experience as uh, whenever she hears guitar music, she feels a brushing against her ankles, or whenever she hears violins, she gets this prickly sensation in her face, and then hearing trumpets have sensations in the back of her neck. Um, and another example from the article talks about uh, Dr. Sean Day, who is a professor of linguistics in the National Central University in Taiwan. So he describes tasting beef as seeing a very rich blue color and steamed gingered squid as, quote, a large glob of bright orange foam about four feet away directly in front of me. Uh, So day is actually a very rare case in the already rare expression of synesthesia because not many people see these projected images in real time, almost like augmented reality. So a few researchers in the late 1800s, early 1900s proposed that synesthesia is actually just a very strong association that we've formed uh, between two different stimuli, but this has actually been widely rejected. So while I was researching different journal articles for this topic, I was surprised to see how divided the information was in terms of is synesthesia um, learned or innate? Um, So one of the phenomena that we are going to specifically hit on today is uh, chromesthesia, which is a subset of synesthesia. 
So out of the two examples I talked about earlier with Carol and Sean, they are uh, different types of synesthesia, but one uh, we're going to focus on uh, is the sound to color synesthesia, which is the chromesthesia. So an example of chromesthesia would be hearing a sound or a piece of music and seeing colors. So the review article, Back to the Future, Synesthesia Could Be Due to Associative Learning, briefly talks about how different types of synesthesia can occur because of too much connectivity between brain regions, which is a widely popular explanation. So in a different review article, Synesthesia, Pitch Color Isomorphism in RGB Space, they give a more clear example of chromesthesia in which when you hear a tone, you're actually aware of the name of the note at the same time you see the color that it produces. So they also found that chromesthesia is more common in people that have perfect pitch or absolute pitch, just on the basis that you have two different senses as reference points for pitch accuracy. So you can actually hear the tone and you can actually see if you're singing or playing the note in tune. So the article talks about how people with chromesthesia and absolute pitch are, quote, not able to divorce their absolute pitch from the color associations, which for music theory people means that the enharmonic note equivalence or differences in function of a note in a chord doesn't change the consistent colors or combination of colors that these folks are seeing. So this changes a little bit when you're talking about quarter tones because they're still not viewed the same, but there's not a clear formula or consistent color correspondence that's been noticed thus far into chromesthesia research. Nevertheless, it is definitely a really interesting phenomenon that does not have too much information about it, so I definitely foresee more uh, research being done in this area. So that is all we have today um, on this episode of Brain Matters. So if you like what you heard, please share this episode with a friend. And if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to the Daily Beacon podcast for bi-weekly episodes on the Brain Matters podcast. A huge thank you once again to Dr. Murphy for taking the time out of her day and busy schedule to sit down and chat with us about music theory and the complex process of making music. So once again, my name is Anu Kumar, and I hope you learned something new today.